Welcome. Welcome, welcome. You are here for Bathsheba. If you don't want to hear about Bathsheba, you are in the wrong spot, so we'll give you a moment to, you know, that's okay. But, yeah, all right. So um, we are so excited to have you. I hope you enjoyed your free time, enjoyed the sunshine, and, and got some, some good, refreshing time. Um, yeah, I, Beth and I are so excited to, to have you guys and to, to walk through this passage over the next hour. But first, we did want to introduce ourselves a little bit. My name is Sarah, and I work on the Lancaster team with my husband, Keith, and we have a son, Ezekiel, who's a year old, and he's running around uh, this weekend, so if you've seen him, that's who he is. I did just take a throat lozenge that was a numbing one, and I didn't know that, so I can't really feel my tongue right now, so I will say, if I trip over anything, I am allergic to this place. I have a lot of allergies, uh, so if I trip over words, that is why. Uh, and then we also have Beth. I'll let her introduce herself. <laughs> also, I'm definitely drooling a lot. But. <laughs> oh, no. Between us, and I just asked him to please mute me if I sneeze too often with allergies. <laughs> oh, man. My name is Beth Drips. I'm really glad to be here with you guys and to talk, tackle the topic of Bathsheba. I have been on staff with Disciple Makers for about 20 years now, and I've worked both on campus at Penn State, uh, the main campus, and also in our headquarters office. Right now I'm in our headquarters office, and I'm the director of staff training there. And um, I, I love it. I love uh, helping our staff to have more resources at hand as they minister to you. I also have two little ones who I'm missing very much this weekend in kindergarten and second grade, and they are having fun grandma time while I'm here. And I love learning more about the Bible. And so Sarah and I have had a really fun time uh, digging into this passage and thinking it through and praying it over, and we're excited to share it with you today. So Sarah's going to start us off, and then I'm going to jump up for some times of reflection and application. So see you in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So for the next hour, we're going to be talking about another heavy topic. We're going to be talking about loss and restoration. And when you look around, especially on the news, and maybe even in your life, it is really easy to see loss and harm. Perhaps you've watched the happenings in Afghanistan and Ukraine, and you've been shocked by the darkness and the evil and just the sudden and total loss that can come seemingly out of nowhere. Perhaps you've lost a loved one or been deeply betrayed or hurt by someone you trusted I know in, in my family, we had a very serious season of loss where uh, in, the, in the fall, we, we, I grew up on a dairy farm and we lost that farm to a fire. And it, there's this sense of trauma and loss that can come out of nowhere. And even though we know the world is broken, it still surprises us every single time. Or maybe you've experienced a loss entirely of your own making and you just feel like, I messed it up again. So when looking around, loss is easy to see. Restoration, on the other hand, is harder to see sometimes. How could anything good come out of the bad in this world? But Jesus is a God who specializes in restoration. And nothing is too broken for him. And so then for the next hour, we're going to consider the dark and difficult story of a woman who lost much. But God did not forget her and work to restore her story. And I want you to see that if Jesus can restore Bathsheba, he can restore you. So let's pray really quick before we read her story. 
Father, I pray for us during this next hour as we feel the, the late in the afternoon feelings, Lord, that you would just sustain us um, and that you would open our, our hearts um, to be receptive to, to your word, Lord, um, and that, that we would just see you more clearly. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to read her whole story. It's a little long, but I do think it helps to know her whole story. So read along with me, page 28 in your packet, from 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house, the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab how he was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your own house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here also today, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah to the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight it? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went 
and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came back out against us in the field, but we drove them back at the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are also dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one now and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David done, had done displeased the Lord. So we read this story in 2 Samuel 11, and we're picking up kind of in the middle of, of a story. Because these books uh, of Samuel and, and Kings, they're about the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. And they're primarily about, especially Samuel, Israel's most famous king, David. So the, the context, the greater context of the story is tracking David's rise to power and following all the ways that he followed or, as we see today, did not follow the Lord. Because David was supposed to be a righteous king, a great man. Megan had referenced this uh, yesterday in, in the genealogy. And in many ways, he did follow God, but he was also a sinner. And we are about to learn about one of his darkest moments when he was clearly not following God. And so we pick up in the middle of David's story. He has risen from a lowly shepherd to a mighty king. And we've seen that he's acted faithfully and he's carved out this new kingdom of Israel by defeating God's enemies. But now, at this point in the story, he is comfortable. He is powerful. And he's an absolute ruler. And I don't know if you caught it, but our story begins catching David in a place he should not have been. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sends Joab, his general, and his soldiers, but he does not go. This action clues us into where his heart is already at. He is already not following the Lord. He is not where he is supposed to be. And as he is home, one day he sees a beautiful woman washing on her roof. Now this seems strange to us, but this was a fairly normal practice. She's not doing anything out of the ordinary or promiscuous. This is more like a, a ceremonial cleansing rather than like a, a bubble bath on the roof. So this, this, is not, this is not very strange or out of the ordinary. And David sees her and he asks who she, who she is and is told that she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Now, we can be fairly certain, based on other parts of the book, that Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. This is like a personal guard that follows him everywhere. They have fought with him for years at this point. And Uriah is one of the soldiers, so he's deployed right now. There's also a strong possibility that Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's royal advisors. So this means, likely, that Bathsheba grew up around the palace, and David would have been seen as a familiar and trusted older figure in her life. 
And David chooses to grossly abuse her trust and misuse his power as king. He misuses his power to bring great loss in her life. And we see loss in three different ways. I want you to write this on your outline. And you may want to leave some room in between so we can fill in. We see that she has a loss of family, a loss of dignity, and a loss of a future. Family, dignity, future. So so first we see that she lost her family, that her husband is killed. And David is so sneaky about this. It seems very, it seems from this text that he planned to use her to fulfill his lust while her husband is deployed and then hide it like it never happened. But she gets pregnant. And did you catch when, when she tells David from verses 6 through 13, he has this really elaborate scheme where he is trying to get Uriah to come back so that Uriah will sleep with his wife so they can pass off the pregnancy as his own so nobody would, would not be known. And Uriah, to his character, he says, you know, my brothers in arms are in the field. Like, I'm not going to go enjoy time with my wife while everybody else is out on mission. Like, you see the, the, even his character in that. And David goes through this series of trying to get him there, then trying to get him drunk and get him there. And when he realizes that none of this is going to work, how, this is so cruel. This is his friend. He sends this secret message that Uriah is carrying with orders in it to have him killed. And that's what happens. So we see that she loses her family. But we also see that she loses dignity, that this is a public thing, that he, he just uses her, and this comes to light. And, and so she, event, she eventually is seen as the, this woman that the king took, and we don't know what was going on. We have no idea of what her thoughts, actually. We have no account from her perspective. Um, but we see that there's this, this big scandal and, and that he just abuses her trust. Like we said, this, this is a familiar person in her life. Because it is clear, no matter what she thought of David, she did not have a choice here. He is the king, and she abu- he abused his power as king to take advantage of her sexually. And so we see that she, she lost this, this family. She lost even her status as a one and only wife. David already has a lot of wives at this point. And so when she gets married, she now is in a harem with a lot of other women. She loses her family. She loses dignity. And it seems like she loses a future. And now she is married to the person who had taken so much away from her. And so this, this is a difficult and hard story, and I do want to acknowledge that. This story is meant to bother us. And the text, when we, we wonder how God could work in it, but the text is very clear that the Lord was displeased with David and puts all of the blame on him. It is important to note that Bathsheba is never once blamed or shamed in this text. God squarely places the blame on David. And in the very next chapter, he actually sends his prophet Nathan to call out David and reveal how wicked his actions were. And and God also decides that David will have consequences for this sin. The Lord is going to punish punish this. And so there's, there's a number of things, but one of the consequences 
is that the son she has will not live, but dies as a baby. God is not going to let David get away with this sin and get an heir, which in their culture would be seen as a good thing. And so now it feels like Bathsheba has lost a sense of future. Because even though none of this is her fault, she is impacted both by the sin and its consequences. She lost a child. And the text here is focused on David because it is tracking David's reign. But what this story reveals, and even what Megan mentioned yesterday, is we desperately need a king who will do right all the time. This story does not shy away from how badly David has blown it. In fact, that is the point. He is supposed to be a righteous and holy king, and in this moment, he is not. And there's an important principle here. Other than Jesus, we cannot make heroes out of the humans in Scripture. We can't make heroes out of the humans. We cannot put them on a pedestal. Because in our, even in these stories, we've learned all weekend that the, the, the good people, so to speak, are still wicked sinners. But even the wicked sinners are still made in the image of God. And so you might have heard some of David's stories in Sunday school, and he's really treated like a hero. And if you don't know this story, this might be really shocking or really disturbing. But it's important to realize that that he's not the hero of his story. He did do some great things as he followed the Lord, but he also had wicked sin when he turned away from God. And so we should be angry at this story, but it is unfortunately not shocking. Because when anyone turns their eyes away from the Lord and does what is right in their own eyes, sin spirals quickly. And they enter into areas of wickedness where maybe you never thought that you would go. And how many times in the past few years have we heard headlines of people in power who have abused that power and abused the vulnerable? And again, we don't have Bathsheba's perspective, so we don't know exactly how she was feeling. So we have to be careful not to write in our own interpretations from our culture. But it feels, it feels very safe to say that so far, this story is full of sadness and loss and shame and we don't know where she was at in this, if she had been so sinned against that all felt hopeless, or if she had gone along with any of it, if she now also felt she had blown it so badly that God would never restore. Either way, this feels like a situation that could never be restored. But let's bring that today, up to today. I want Beth to come up and talk about, okay, how can we bring this to ourselves and to our times here today? Thanks, Sarah, for um, drawing us along in here. This, um, <clears throat> this story it takes a little bit of thinking about how this might apply to our lives, doesn't it? I mean, I feel very confident going out on a limb and saying that none of us has been widowed and married to a king thereafter. So there's going to need to be a little bit of thinking here. Well, you know, that outside circumstance isn't ours. I think that probably all of us have had some loss in our lives. And, and we may be able to um, look at Bathsheba's story and, and look at it through the eyes of someone who suffered loss. Or perhaps we look at Bathsheba's story and actually we see David and we think, oh, what I hear in this story is someone 
who manipulated other people for their own good and it ended up be blowing up so far beyond what they thought and I've been that manipulator. I've, I've really wrecked something in my life here. So we're gonna, um, we're not, we're not gonna buzz fast over this. Um, and, and I apologize a little in advance because if you're like me, you don't like spending very long thinking about hard things in your life. You'd rather move on quickly to the good things. But whenever I do that, it short circuits the work that God is trying to do in me. So we're just gonna pause here. We're gonna pause for about five minutes for a time of silent reflection. And I'm gonna lead you through a series of questions to consider in, just inside your own thoughts as you're, as you're thinking to yourself and praying to the Lord. Five minutes of silence feels like a very long time. So you can watch your watch if you need to, to not feel anxious about the passing of time. But about every minute or two, I'll ask you another question to lead you along, okay? Um, <clears throat> the, the first question that I would love to ask you to join me in considering is just to bring to mind and ask the Lord to show you what losses have you faced or what suffering are you currently undergoing? Go ahead and ask the Lord to show you now. The losses that we face have a big impact on how we perceive our future and the hope of what could come in our lives. Take a few more minutes here and think about how do the losses that you faced or even the suffering that you're in the midst of, how do those things impact your hope for your future? Suffering and loss have loud voices in our lives. They shout messages to us. To me, suffering and loss often tells me, God is not who you think he is. They tell me that his goodness and that his love are not as sure as I've believed they are. Would you take these last couple minutes and just reflect inside and ask God to show you how have your own losses, what have they spoken to you about who God is? And if you feel like you cannot, that these questions aren't applying to your own situation, but you have just a friend on your heart and mind in them, it's okay to think through that too. How has watching a friend suffer? How has that impacted your view of God? Thank you for diving in with me and sitting in these, in these thoughts and feelings that are arising. That is a brave thing to do. And thanks for being willing to risk that with me. I promise that we won't leave you here in this hard place. Suffering can last a long time, but there is hope. And we're about to see how, although Bathsheba's situation was utterly dark and hopeless, that God intervened in her life. And we're going to think about that for ourselves later, too. Sarah. Yeah. So one of the things I appreciate about this story is that it is not a superficial happy ending story. We are able to see how God worked restoration, but in a way that never dismisses or glosses over the hard parts. Because the things that happened to Bathsheba were not good. The losses that she suffered were significant. But her life was not over, and she was more than her darkest days. And when we see God working restoration, I want you to write three things again. We see that he restored family, dignity, and future. 
So God restored what David took away. First, family. Marrying David does not make sense to us in our culture and probably feels a little creepy. But I want to explain that because even though that doesn't make sense, in their culture, what that actually did was make sure that David had to take responsibility and could not get away with his sin, that he couldn't just use and abandon her. Because it's been a repetitive theme this weekend, how few options widows had in the ancient world that your options were go back to your father's house, like Tamar, get remarried, or become homeless, and in a lot of cases get forced into prostitution. This is a really vulnerable position. And I think we can even just take a moment to praise the Lord that that is not our situation right now. Like, I really do think that that is a glimpse of grace even in this, that we see the desperation that a lot of these women were facing. And I know that we face difficult times too, but man, I can't even imagine being in this situation. But so we remember that you, you need to have children to support you economically. There's no retirement village in this situation. And so we have no record of her having any children with Uriah. And although this isn't fair either, in their culture, she's been the object of this scandal. And she's pregnant with someone else's child. So it's pretty unlikely that someone else would marry her. But remarrying is the only option she has for any sense of stability. And this happened in the context of an honor-shame culture. Now, we live in what's called an innocence-guilt culture. So even as you read this story, you're probably really tempted to focus on, I want to make sure David pays and does not get away with this. And that happens. But there's also a lot in this story that's about how in the community, Bathsheba's honor and her dignity are publicly restored. And so marrying David is about restoring her dignity and and giving her a chance at family again and stability. Giving her back and restoring some of these things that she had lost. Because David could have just hidden her away and forgotten about her, shut her up, uh, sent her away. But you do see as you continue to read that that God also restored a future. They have a marriage that resulted in at least five children, giving Bathsheba security for, for her future. After the first baby died, the one that's mentioned here, she goes on to have another son. And after all the loss she experienced, the text says this son was chosen by the Lord and the Lord loved him. And he was chosen to succeed David as, all, uh, as, as king after David came. And Solomon really was a great king. He really was a bright spot in the kingdom of Israel. Also, not perfect. Don't make him the hero because he definitely does some problematic things. But he built Israel into a great nation. And so through Bathsheba, God blessed the whole country. He, he brought a future, not just for Bathsheba, but for the nation. And we find more glimpses of grace in her story as we keep reading. We really see that God works in spite of David because actually you see she shows up in really quick verses like throughout 1 Kings, Chronicles, these random spots. And you see that she really became a wise and influential queen. She she had a lot of public dignity. And it also seems significant that the prophet Nathan really seems to be a friend and advocate with her, that he has her respect. He does not blame or shame her. 
And he, I mean, he's an influential religious figure in, in, their, in their time. You even see at the end of David's life, another one of David's sons is trying to steal the throne. And Bathsheba is the one who is able to stand up and confront David. And he respects her enough to listen to her and make sure that Solomon will become the king. And as Solomon is king, you see that his mother continues to be a wise advisor to her son. She helps him navigate some very difficult situations as he's coming to power. And so you see that God restored family and dignity and future. Now, it's not a perfect ending. It doesn't mean, it doesn't wash over the things that happened before. But I I want us to understand in their cultural context, this was the closest that David could come to making things right by her. Through a really dark situation, God was able to bring some good in spite of David's sin. And so we do see glimpses of grace and a degree of restoration and resolution but it's by no means a superficial happy ending. You may even still feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I, I do. But remember earlier when I said that this story reveals the need for a king who will do right all the time? Through Bathsheba, eventually that king came. And it wasn't David. And it wasn't Solomon. But 28 generations later, Jesus was born fully man and fully God. And he was the perfect king. And our our glimpse of grace of what a good king could look like in Solomon is fully realized in Jesus. We see that Jesus came not to abuse his power to take advantage of vulnerable women, but to lay down his life and die for them. It's noted in in the Gospels that many women followed Jesus And I don't know this for sure, but I really do think that a part of them realized that he was not there to take advantage of them. And that Jesus is not here to take advantage of you. Instead, he is here to die for you. And Jesus shows that grace extends to everyone by refusing to whitewash and hide the difficult parts of family history. Because we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I want to bring it up again. A genealogy is your family tree. But in in an ancient Jewish context, it's more than that. It's also like your resume. Like who you're related to really matters. And in a genealogy, that is where you brag about the the family members that would look good. And you, you really hide the ones that don't. Like, this is like Abuela scratching out Bruno. Like, you're allowed to, you're allowed to do that in a, in a Jewish context. That way you would, that's what you would do. But in Jesus's, and you typically would only have men. But in Jesus' Jesus's genealogy, he includes these four women. And he puts them front and center. And even, I love in the genealogy, when it comes to David, who is like one of the OGs of the OT. Like, you would want to know that you are related to this guy. What does it say? Do you remember that he that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? It puts David like really on blast in that moment that it, like he he does not hide it, and 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 he he does this to to show that uh, that that even in the genealogy David's sins are laid bare for all to see, and Bathsheba isn't necessarily mentioned by name, but we see that Jesus does not play the Sunday school hero game. 
There is no one so righteous that they don't need Jesus. And there is no one so broken that Jesus can't reach them. And so we see glimpses of grace in Bathsheba's story when we see that even in the midst of great sin and loss, she was more than her darkest days. We see glimpses of longing for a good king. We also see a God who saw and did not forget her. He provided justice and restoration. And I love, I love the quote that Beth put at the top of the outline. Grace is as large in renewing us as sin was in defacing. He provided justice and restoration for her and eventually salvation for all humans through the perfect king, Jesus. But what does this mean for us today? How do we move from loss to restoration? We're going to have Beth come back up and talk about that. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Friends, I don't know what um, drew you here today. What made you think, oh, I think a talk about Bathsheba is the right place for me to come. But I'm really glad you're here. And you might have come because you thought, yeah, I, I do find myself carrying loss and carrying shame from things that have happened to me in my life. And it's not fair, but I still feel a lot of shame for it. Or you might find yourself confronting your own losses that have been caused by your own doing and feeling deep shame at the choices that you've made that have led you to some places you never wanted to be at. And, and I want to just offer to you, sisters, the grace of God is the same for you no matter what your situation is, that the love of our Father extends to you today, and that his forgiveness is deep and wide, and his renewal is complete, and he will not leave you where you are. Run to him. And I, I'd like to take a few minutes here to give you a moment to run to him. You'll notice in your packet, the page after the scripture text is blank. It just has letter to God at the top. And I'd like to invite you, give you a couple minutes to just write out some of the things that you're thinking about to the Lord. Maybe, maybe you could tell him, hey, God, I actually, as I think about it, I have seen some ways that you're already showing me grace in a situation that I just thought was really hopeless. And and you want to speak that back to him. But maybe you're not there yet. Maybe instead you just can't even hope for redemption in the place that you're at. You can't imagine how God could make that anything other than the utter train wreck it is. Just take a minute and ask God to give you some hope and write out something that you wish you could even hope could come from the situation that you're in and ask God for it. Maybe even after the seminar, you can ask a friend to pray a bold prayer with you and persevere in praying and asking God to bring the redemption that you can barely bring yourself to hope for. Or maybe from uh, our last time together when we were starting to talk about how our view of God can be really just twisted by suffering and pain and loss. Maybe you want to talk to God a little more about that in this letter. Maybe you want to talk to him about how how the way that you see him has been twisted and ask him to help you to get a right view of him again. Um, Maybe that's something that you can pray about and ask God to bring healing and correction in your own heart so that you don't have to live with that anymore. Um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you about four minutes. So you don't have to really rush, but also, you know, 
you won't have a ton of time to go back and correct your work, so to speak. So <laughs> just write your thoughts to the Lord. Nobody is going to see it but you and him anyway. So go ahead. <clears throat> Sometimes the ways that God brings grace to us in the midst of our darkest moments and our deepest losses, sometimes that's through people he sends to us in our lives. And I want to mention three ways that he might do that for you. The first way is that if, as you are thinking about these, these losses and difficulties, as you're thinking about them now or, or later on campus as you're thinking about them, if you find yourself wondering, I wonder if I should see a counselor about this, you probably should. Uh, and I would encourage you that if you find yourself wondering that or if you find yourself going to even darker places where you start to feel hopeless or wanting to do anything to get out of the darkness or thinking about ways of hurting yourself, don't wait a moment, friend. Reach out straight away. Talk to your staff worker. Talk to a friend. Call 911. Reach out to your campus um, mental health center and get an appointment. If the wait times are long, talk to your staff or your pastor. They might be able to refer you to a Christian counselor in the area who might be able to get you in a little sooner. But don't overlook the grace of God in bringing us amazing professionals who study our minds and how they interact with our bodies and help us process hard things. The second way that you might see um, the grace of God in your life is I would really encourage you to to take the grace of God through your friends in the fellowship, through your staff worker, and think of somebody trusted who you might be able to share some of these thoughts with and ask to pray with you. Um, and not maybe just once, but to pray for you for maybe the rest of the semester, through the summer. Pray for God's healing and his work in you and his help for you. The third way that I'd like to invite you to take um, advantage of and to taste the grace of God is um, to do some processing next in some small groups. And I know up till now you were thinking disciple makers is apparently only for the internal processors. <laughs> but now we welcome you external processors to the scene. <laughs> so um, I'd like to invite you to form a, a small group, maybe get four of you or five of you in a group as much as you can, turn your chairs and um, you are free to share uh, from the personal things that you've been thinking if you want, but also this would be a really great place if you came because you were thinking this whole time about someone you love who's really hurting and you want to help them and you don't know what to do. And you're thinking about this story of Bathsheba and you're wondering what would it look like to be a good friend in this time? This would be a good place to start processing that and getting ideas from other people. So go ahead and circle your chairs up. You have about 10 minutes to talk with each other and try as you're sharing stories, especially about other people, please try to be um, cautious of people's privacy, okay? Thank you. Well, friends, our time here is drawing to an end. I'm sorry to interrupt your good conversations here. Bathsheba's story is a story for those who have been so harmed by others that they feel like they could never see redemption, that that God could never use them and wouldn't choose to. And her story is also for those who feel that they've messed up so much that they could never be part of God's plan. 
And I hope that if you or someone you dearly love find yourself feeling one of those ways and stuck in one of those situations, that you will remember Bathsheba and that you will remember that God remembered her and God preserved her story and God cared for her and he redeemed her and he gave grace back to her and he did not leave her in the darkness that she found herself in. And I hope that you will have hope for that for yourself and for those you dearly love who suffer too. Please, um, please go ahead and find, um, find someone else to share with as you go out of here if you are feeling burdened. Uh, don't let yourself stay burdened for the rest of the evening. Find a friend or a staff member to talk to, okay? Uh, thank you for being with us. Let me pray, and then I'm going to uh, send you to take a break and head to dinner. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving the story of Bathsheba, that in a time where um, women's stories were never recorded, um, that you yet um, preserved for us stories of women, of, of daughters of yours, um, and, you, and you loved them and restored them and upheld them um, in spite of the mess of this world that they lived in. I pray for my sisters here. I pray for your blessing on them. I pray that in places where um, they feel stuck and hopeless, that you would shine hope into their lives and that they would see your goodness and your faithfulness to them, not only in faith, but in, in reality, that that would come true for them. Lord, I pray uh, for friends to surround them who love you, and I pray um, that, that as they look around behind them, they would see your goodness and your love following them every single day of their lives. Um, in Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.